Hello, and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I'm Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. And today with me is no one. Andrew is out defending the public. Uh, so I'm going to do this intro solo. This week, we are talking to Professor Michael Rosino about his new book, Debating the Drug Wars. Uh, we are also talking about, or I guess I'm talking about, how to make your own handmade chocolates. Uh, so I'm a big believer that you should constantly have dark chocolate chips and white chocolate chips in your kitchen. because There's just a thousand ways to use them. They're great for baking mistakes if you need to go from a cake to cake bowls. They're great for decoration if you want to add a little pizzazz. Um, I think a messy drizzle of chocolate on anything really elevates it. Uh, but we had some family in and out of town this week. We were visiting family. Family was visiting us. And so something I really like to do is make little gift baskets uh, because it takes some time, but you can make a really high-end product for a really low-end budget. Uh, so we put together a basket for one of my sisters that included some of the macarons we make, uh, some jams. I have like little jars now that I keep on hand, so I made some jams. Uh, and we talked about how to make jams in a couple of our episodes, so uh, I recommend going through the backlog for that. Uh, we also made simple syrup, which is really simple to do. It's equal parts sugar and water, and you boil it. Uh, but then you can do infinite variations. So we made a lemon and basil simple syrup, which is excellent for gin and tonics. It's great to put in cakes. Uh, you can flavor really anything with a simple syrup. Uh, so simple syrups in a little jar is one of my favorite things to give people because it's really fancy but really simple. Uh, but then the star of the show for this gift basket was these little chocolates I made. Uh, so we have silicon ice molds uh, that we typically use to make our ice, but they look like little jewels. So I filled the silicon mats with uh, white chocolate and then stuffed the white chocolate with chocolate ganache. Uh, so for this one, you would have to have heavy cream on hand. Uh, I think most people don't have cream on hand. Um, so if you want to make a ganache, uh, you would want a heavier set ganache. So it would be two parts chocolate to one part cream. Uh, for kind of a pouring ganache, it would be equal parts. Um, so there are different levels of ratios you can use for different kinds of ganache. For a filling, you would want to go for a hard set ganache, which is what we did. Uh, but if you don't have heavy cream, you could fill these with fruit. You could fill them with um, kind of frostings. There's really no end to what you can stuff these with. Um, we did a white chocolate with dark chocolate ganache, but you could do a chocolate with peanut butter. Uh, fill it with different candies or nuts or berries. Um, so you can really customize based on who you're giving the gift to. Uh, the one thing we did that I wish that we hadn't is we filled each row of the silicon mat. I think I would skip rows so that they're easier to pop out at the end. It was really difficult to get our chocolates out. Uh, but we just had them set in the fridge for a couple of hours and then we uh, kind of plated up our basket and it looked really beautiful. Uh, so check out our basket and our little chocolates on Instagram. We're at Proofing and Lies, and enjoy our interview. All right, welcome back, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this week, we are joined by Michael Rosino. He is a professor of sociology at Malloy College, and he is the author of Debating the Drug War. Uh, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. It's like 90 degrees in Brooklyn, so it's actually good that my camera isn't working i'm a little sweaty but other than that no i'm very i'm very excited to be here talk about all of these interesting things going on with racial politics and you know all that good stuff yeah, yeah well it's i mean it's about 90 degrees here too it's right been, um, it's been a hell of a week so <laughs> yeah yeah you're not the only one well i feel like to just kick us off so you have written debating the drug war mm-hmm you want to talk about what is what is your book about what what have you been writing about what is the debate absolutely uh yeah so i mean like a lot of people i've been really interested in drug policy because it seems like one of the most contentious and glaring like uh issues for not only sort of like everyone has a really strong opinions about how we should handle drug use which makes it in the book, I call it a, a contested social issue. It's something that is 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 under constant debate and contestation. But I've always been fascinated in like 
how did we end up with these really counterintuitive laws in dealing with substances? I mean, even just growing up, like, why is it that we treat um, cannabis in such an intense and harsh way? Why is it scheduled the way it is? You know, why is it that certain people get treated like, you know, they have a medical issue and other people are treated like criminals? Why is it that certain neighborhoods are targeted more than others? Like, all of these questions just seemed really great sociological fodder for me to, like, start thinking about. And... You know, one of the things that I started to realize is there is this really deep connection that I think more uh, people are trying to pay attention to, especially with the proliferation of social media, which is there's a connection between the, the types of debates that we have as a society about a given policy, the types of debates that you see in like the room for debate section of New York Times, where all of these people are weighing in, or, you know, if you wanted to look at uh make the same mistake I did and look at internet sec uh, comments about an issue. You'll still people love to debate things. I mean, you know, we're all on Twitter. We see people love to have hot takes on issues. And so I'm really interested in like, how is it that the types of public debates that we have and um, how does that influence policy outcomes? How does that constrain or enable certain uh, policies how does it shape people's political imaginations? How does it shape how people form racial identities? So I really started from this position of being curious about these outcomes, like the inequalities, the, the, the hypocritical sort of drug laws, the um, you know counter uh, to all of the evidence types of policies. And then just being like, okay, well, what, it, like for the public, like how are they engaging with this? What are the things that people are saying? What are the the big narratives and discourses and how is that shaping these outcomes? So that's kind of what the book is about is like taking a step back, you know, using even something like um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is like a little bit of a jumping off point. Like she's talking about these outcomes. She gets into a little bit about some of the politics of it. But I wanted to look at as, as sort of like a political sociologist who's interested in media you know, we have all of this information about how people talk about these issues in the public. And as sociologists, you know, as scholars, we have all this evidence that's empirical about what's actually happening and what works. So I'm also interested in like, how are there certain taken for granted assumptions in this debate that are shaping policy outcomes or even the things that we might think of as being possible to achieve through policy? How are those assumptions being reproduced? Yeah, so I guess those are kind of the, the major big questions with, with that the book attempts to answer. Yeah, and I, so I did, a, I did a content analysis um, looking at about 30 years worth of newspaper content. I think, you know, thousands of, of internet comments and just trying to get a sense of like, what are the dominant discourses and narratives about drug policy in the public debate? That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. oh man, <laughs> the public comments especially. Well, I wanted to add, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things for me as, um, you know, as, as a defense attorney has been how drastically different now we treat marijuana mm -hmm. than we did, I mean, even honestly, even like 10, 20 years ago, you know, and how much that, you know, in the early days of the drug war, in the early days of drug policy, how much marijuana was tied in with heroin and cocaine and everything mm -hmm. else. It was another hard drug. And you were punished as though it was another hard drug. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested to see that you are interested to ask, you know, if you're able to comment on how are what happened? Like how <laughs> how did marijuana be this you know become the one thing that broke off from all of the other drugs? And how how are people talking about it in yeah. a different way than they are, you know, other what used to be all hard drugs, you know? That, that is a really fascinating question. And that's another question that I think really kind of motivated me to, to look into this is, like you said, there is definitely, I think we could call it like cannabis exceptionalism or something. And, you know, if you look at the history of drug laws, pretty much every single one can be tied to a specific racialized moral panic. So, like, I think most people are familiar with the reefer madness narrative and how cannabis was tied to... Mexican immigrants, and there was a lot of fears that, um, you know, any type of, of immigrants or, or non-white people more broadly, if you want to look at the context of racial formation, 
that their drug use or the drug use that gets associated with them is somehow inherently immoral, corrupting, evil. And to answer your question about like what's happened with cannabis is that cannabis use has been whitened. There's a lot of evidence that some of the early reform agencies, things like um, normal marijuana policy project, their strategy wasn't actually to contest sort of these myths about who uses drugs or to even head on address the racial injustice components of marijuana policy. Their approach was to attempt to depict the users of cannabis as people who were like, let's say, uh, white veterans who are struggling with PTSD, college students who are trying marijuana and just got caught up in the criminal justice system. They have so much promise. So by changing that narrative about what we imagine the average cannabis user looks like, I mean, we can also see how it's facilitated the, the whitening of the, the cannabis industry. So like there are states like Illinois, where there's not a single dispensary or, um, you know, cannabis uh, company that is owned by a person of color, even though they have legal cannabis. And it's because they've attempted to kind of deracialize it. But by doing that, they've done nothing to actually challenge the underlying racial injustice. So even in states where cannabis has been legalized, you know, New York is a little bit of an exception in this because of how they passed the drug laws. And it's been really cool to see. But the minor infractions that they still police are still disproportionately targeting low income black and Latino communities. So even for things like, you know, smoking in public or, you know, underage consumption, those are still targeted towards the same communities that were targeted by the drug war. So, yeah, I mean, even that story has has racial politics deeply at its root. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, go ahead. No, no. Oh, no, that's what, what when I when you um, talked about like changing the racial identity of, of the average user, I'm thinking about too now. I I feel like at least in like anecdotally, a lot of the the more modern trend of well, this is an epidemic, this is a medical problem, we should treat people, comes from the perception of a lot of victims of the op opioid epidemic being mm -hmm. suburban white kids. Yeah as opposed to, you know, crack cocaine in the eighties or any of the other big drug wave moral mm -hmm. panics. Whereas now, right now it is, oh my God, like what a, what a problem we, we really have to take care of these, these kids. Oh my God. Uh, because it's perceived that your average heroin overdose victim mm -hmm. or fentanyl victim or whatever is, is a 20 something year old white kid who was like in over his head who, you know, maybe start doing Vicodin and didn't realize and now, oh God, what a, what a horrible tragedy. Um, yeah. Which it is, you know, it is. I like, I don't want <laughs> to make fun, uh, but it is like a much whiter average person, I feel like, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because in the book, I talk about this in terms of what I call a racial empathy gap. And I'm not the first person to like coin that term, but I saw it really prevalent in looking at not only the, the public narratives, but also just like the, the reaction to different types of drug use and drug users. So even the example of like opiates, there's research demonstrating that like this racial empathy gap also just impacts how different communities that use the same drugs are treated. So rates of uh, noxalone use, which is like um, a drug that helps people uh, prevent, I might even be like pronouncing it slightly wrong, but uh, you know, help prevent people from overdosing is much more likely to be distributed in predominantly white rural communities than in uh, communities of color, in particular more urban communities where it's kind of tr still treated as like, oh, you know, if someone's going to overdose, that it's their problem or their fault. There's still a blaming kind of narrative. There's still a moralization well, to the point that I think, you know, I've even heard um, you know, I've done some work where I've been in like public dialogues with police officers talking about some of these issues. I've heard police officers say, like, I don't feel like it's my responsibility to keep saving people's lives if they want to kill themselves. So, like, you know, there are clearly these two different, drastically different um, emotional sort of reactions to similar types of things. And, you know, it's interesting 
when we put it even in the broader context of, of most drug use not being problematic to begin with. So, you know, the, even for something like heroin, most people that use heroin don't have a substance use disorder. And I think that is counterintuitive to how we even think about drugs in the United States. And so it's all of these different kinds of things where I would find a very popular common place narrative that people were using even people who are trying to say, hey, we need to reform drug laws. Like these are common misconceptions among the drug reform crowd, even. Well, that's what um, I, I was, I was, if I can interrupt, I, I really do want to talk about that because that's my like pet peeve of, you know, the new soft on crime or whatever, like drug court, drug reform mm -hmm. shit is the alternative to locking everyone up is now treating everyone like they have a substance abuse disorder. Yeah. Right? Like if you get caught with, you know, a little bag of Coke or a couple of pills or whatever, your alternatives now are, you know, hey, we won't lock you up. It's not the 80s anymore. And that's great. But the <laughs> alternative now seems to be we're going to treat you like you have a problem. And yeah. We're going to like very much top down, you know, parental style, however you want to phrase it. Yeah. Like you're going to be under somebody's watch for a year, two years. There's going to be time in jail, time in prison behind every, mm -hmm. like waiting for you behind every command of the court. You're going to be reporting to a probation officer. It's going to be hard for you to find a job. You're going to have to be, you know, at a certain place at a certain time, pissing in a cup, all this stuff, yep. because we're going to act like you have, a, there's no alternative. This is the soft version right mm -hmm. this nicer version is we're going to act like you have a problem and, and act like if you want to use ever again or you want to drink ever again or you want to not you know report to probation twice a week that you have a problem that needs to be solved and we need to then bring the hammer on you yeah i mean i think that's where even like the more uh you know that more health centered i guess i would put health in quotes but the more sort of the one that, that tends to medicalize it or treat it as though it is, it still has the punitive arm of the state behind it, you know? And I think about that sometimes when, um, you know, Victor Rios it, um, in his book, Punish, he kind of talks about sort of the punitive arm of this state, the left arm and the right arm, one is punitive and one is like care. So, you know, we obviously have dwindled our investments as a society in, in any kind of institutions or any kind of public uh, arm that functions to provide people support and care and even the ones that are intended to so like a recovery program for instance it still has all the same logic of the punitive arm of the state embedded in it and it's the same kind of thing that you see with um you know police officers in schools and metal detectors the, the police or the school prison pipeline um, it's the same logic that you see in terms of the surveillance and policing of, of people on welfare or who receive any type of public um, support who aren't, you know, taking advantage of like tax write-offs or something. Apparently that's fine. Yeah. But yeah, that's something that I've definitely noticed is like the, the punitive arm and, and the punitive logic of, of uh, the drug war is, is still extremely pervasive. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the, the, victories that have been won or, or changes in public opinion have not really gotten to the root even remotely of, of any of these issues. Um, you know, I, I do want to give a shout out to, to New York uh, because I don't know if, if you are aware of, of kind of the way they've handled legalizing cannabis. Um, you know, I've been kind of keeping in touch with the um, Drug Policy Alliance and they've done a lot of the work and New York's uh, cannabis laws, and, and they've really um, done things like making sure that that uh, there's equity in terms of the tax revenue that it's being reinvested in, in communities um, that were disproportionately harmed by the drug war, that um, there is no street uh, policing. So like people, you know, I, I'll go on a walk and there's people walking down the street smoking a joint and it's, and, and it's not illegal. Like, because, you know, it's those little minor infractions. It's the broken window style policing yeah. that matters just as much. Well, that's so, a, um, yeah. The, the NYPD has to be fucking livid about that, huh? 
yeah, I don't know how they pulled it off, to be honest. I'm very impressed with, with what people have managed to do. I think part of it is that they were, I don't want to be too cynical and say that they were taking advantage of, of sort of a political scandal with, with Cuomo and, and him wanting to kind of get some goodwill. Um, but, you know, in a cynical sense, like I'm kind of like, if that's how it gets done and it means that people aren't being incarcerated and policed in these really violent ways for something that is like, you know, relatively mundane, you know, thing to do, that's fine. And, uh, but, um, you know, it's exciting to have to set a precedent. There's currently a debate going on in Connecticut around the same types of issues where activists are pushing for these types of reforms that will lead to decarceration, equity, resolving some of the underlying issues, um, resolving the impacts of racial oppression and making it so that people can do things like grow cannabis in their own homes, that there's not going to be this monster sort of Walmart style cannabis industry dictating everything. Um, and so that, that, you know, that's happening at, at a state level in a lot of different places. So, you know, it, it's interesting, like for the book to come out right now, and actually, as I got my copy of the book in the mail, it was really delayed because of COVID. Like when I got a physical copy, that was the same day that they announced that weed had been legalized in New York. So it was kind of a strange day. Yeah. Yeah. So that was nice. Um, yeah. And it led to a lot of celebrating. So that was good. We're trying to think how to phrase it. I feel like you and I were all three of us probably yeah. on the same page where like what you would want out of the state as a response to addiction right is we're here to help you mm -hmm. if you need resources if you need rehab if you need medical attention you know that that's what you would want the state's role to be right i i think um, absolutely and it seems like that is the area that everyone is the least willing to put money in even today right or at least like you don't get there without going through 17 layers of punitive justice system stuff first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's another thing where like a lot of other public um, services, you know, people that have a certain amount of status op don't need to rely on public services. So a big part of it is, you know, when we say that, that the state could be providing these services for people potentially because of the, the sort of like neoliberalism of, of how we think about all these things as a, as a society. The only way we can imagine it is that, okay, only poor people are going to be taken advantage of this. So we have to, with that assumption, kind of think about how can we have some type of social control involved? Because ultimately every kind of policy choice, even for under a very, you know, even under Democrats, even under, very like lib socially liberal politicians or, or socially liberal political eras, there's still this element of thinking about we're going to provide this service. It's going to be just for people who need it, but because you need it, you're now treated as a suspicious and, and you have to basically acknowledge like being like a morally contemptible person because you need help. Yeah. And it's something that I think, you know, a lot of people struggle to to think outside of that. And it also really kind of, it obscures any of the root causes of any of these things. Like we're not asking why, why do people suffer from substance use disorder? There's a, obvious correlations with things like, you know, there's obvious correlations with, with uh, status obsession and materialism and how that can connect people with having a certain approach to drug use. Uh, obviously, unprocessed trauma can can lead to compulsive drug use. Um, you know, and so we don't really have a way of thinking about these like why questions. We just kind of treat it like everything is like this weird sort of behavioral calculus. We want to make the make sure the consequences are really bad, and that's the only way we can really think about it. Well, it's, it's interesting to me because I think in this day and age, at least most places, or at least most urban centers, most like large counties or like large justice systems will at least on paper acknowledge like this is not a criminal, this is a medical thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
addictions not occur. But like, if you break your leg, right? <laughs> like no one's threatening you with jail time if you don't go to the surgeon to get your leg reset. <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. what really like, blows my, you know, if, if, you know, right. You pull a hamstring. No one's making you go like, hey, you got to, got to see this guy about your hamstring thing every mm-hmm. yeah right like <laughs> once a week or else you know we're gonna we're gonna you're gonna spend the weekend in jail when what i think is interesting too is like if you're if you're caught with a broken leg right and they say well if we test you and you have aspirin in your system we're gonna <laughs> like send you to jail <laughs> where people who have substance issues might get a parole condition of not being able to drink alcohol which is legal right yeah, um, and so it's absolutely. so incredibly difficult to get out of this web when we know scientifically we know it takes people multiple tries, mm-hmm. and so we we yeah. put people in a condition that's not conducive for success, and then we're angry that they aren't succeeding. Yeah, I think you know it, it's really difficult because. On a certain level, like we know all these things. I think that, you know, there is an evidence basis for establishing best practices for all of these things. If we start from the assumption, like what we're doing in this conversation of like, how can we just help people? How can we make people's lives less shitty? Like, you know, how can we make it so that if you, if you're having a hard time, someone helps you? Like, that seems like a good place to start to have a good society. We try to establish, you know, the best practices for achieving that. There's an evidence basis for what works and what doesn't work, you know. And ultimately, I think what's so fascinating, and this is the process that I really kind of, I, like, kind of realized in the book is, in through writing it, is just kind of like how much that, you know, that sort of consensus about what works if it's outside the, the bounds of a certain like um, limitation in the debate, if it's outside the terms that are already set by elites and by authority figures um, who are, are already defining what the problem is and defining what the terms are well in advance, um, and they're influencing the, the media narrative around it by being sort of uh, spokespeople for different institutions, that makes it so that even these kinds of um, remedies that are based in evidence that would actually uh, address root causes that would actually do all the things that you know people say they want to achieve. They're getting treated as like that's too that's too radical, it's too wild, you know. And it's interesting because I think that is one of the major stumbling blocks. We have such a disparity between evidence and policy in the United States. That when you look at these policy debates, it ends up being a lot more about political narratives. It ends up being a lot more about power. It ends up being a lot more about um, the policing of people's imaginations and what they think is possible. And ultimately, that's how we can kind of at least understand like how um, these things get so distorted in it when it comes to actual implementation and what actually ends up happening is there are so many perverse incentives for um, maintaining inequalities, for going along with the status quo. There are so many industries that spring up a- alongside moral panics that then create these weird capital investments and systems going a certain way. So there are a lot of, of things that can really distort um, the conversations and distort the policies. And just realizing the role of narrative in all this, I think, is really big because as much as we, you know, someone might publish a paper that proves something, the, it's the actual narrative and how that infiltrates public conversations and reshapes what people think is possible, reshapes um, how people look at the issue that really matters. And, and that's one of the things that I've been pushing when it comes to meeting with drug reform organizations or talking to people that are doing like activism work is really pushing the idea that there's been a, um, they need to be focusing a lot more on sort of sh- agenda setting rather than in, um, you know, frame alignment. We think of frame alignment as being this really successful thing that social movements do where they're using the, the language and the, the narratives that are already there in the public 
to try to um, convince people. But the frames and the narratives that we already have out in the public are so ill-equipped for actually dealing with these things. So then it ends up being like, okay, so we have to talk about drug reform, but we have to say how, um, you know, it's going to improve law and order in society. It's going to um, raise, you know, tax revenue. It's going to help people get rich. It's going to be job creators. We're getting so far away from the actual thing that we're trying to do just to try to get people on our side that then it's no surprise that all of these different perverse incentives are still baked in, even in like the post-reform world that we live in. Well, it's just, I mean, you know, one needle exchange in any major city would do more than Mm -hmm. half the shit we spend a million dollars on. Yeah. Well, I think the the frustrating thing, so I I did a stint of um, program evaluation and so like evaluating how effective different intervention programs is. And the single best thing we could do for people with addiction is just create supportive communities. And yeah. like the best way to cure addiction is to get people integrated into the community in healthy ways. But that's not a metric, right? You can't mm-hmm. put a number on that. You can't, right? It takes, you know, six or seven tries to do that. And so it's something we understand on an interpersonal level. If you know someone who struggles with addiction, you know that this is how it works, but it's not something that we can sell the public on, which is so frustrating because, you know, the number one thing we could do for people with addiction is give them more resources, but we have such a punishment mindset uh, in the U.S. that it's, it's hard to sell people on that. Absolutely. Uh, the, the moral politics of it, I think it's important for people to not shy away from actually thinking about the morality of it, because otherwise it's basically creating a vacuum where the only people who are pushing policy solutions that are talking about morality are doing it from a very authoritarian perspective. So it's about morality in the sense that it's about pun who are the good people? Who are the bad people? We have to punish the bad people. But I think there's an, there's an opening in, in the discourse for talking about what does a moral society look like where our morality is based on how we are treating people who are marginalized or people who are suffering. I mean, that is a different form of morality, but we don't, you know, we can merge that with some of this uh, evidence. We can merge that with the, the idea of best practices. Um, but part of the conversation, I think, has to get back to the question of, like, what does it mean to live in a good society? And if that's not part of, of the conversation or, or people who are trying to reform um, things or, or, or make massive social changes are seeding ground on that, that language of morality, I think it's like a missed opportunity almost. Well, I, I think one of the things for me is at least what I see. I mean, so one, um, I, I do like that. And I do try to do that because, you know, a lot of the, the same people who want to punish my clients all the time, right? Tell me how this is a, a Christian country or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I have heard that Jesus Christ had some thoughts about this sort of thing. But, you know, on the other hand, too, I think even a lot of the more reform minded people do still want to have that social control. Mm -hmm. right like i think even a lot of the people who want to like oh well we shouldn't just send these people to prison but we should do you know x y and z i think an angle for them right still is like well we're we're don't worry we're still better than these people (laughs) yes don't don't worry we're we're still like above you and we still do get to tell you what to do well Mm -hmm. or i think even even more complicated is like no don't worry we're still gonna put these plates people somewhere else right, yeah. right, right. they're right. going to be like, somewhere we're else we're still better than them yeah 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 absolutely I, I mean this is this is definitely something that you know these like this is a, another one of these things that i think really does create these kind of um strange outcomes that we're seeing in terms of like how did we get here as a society where this is the terms of the debate is like what are we going to do with these people we've already assigned with stigma and um negative morality um you know what are we gonna do with these like bad disposable people who are only problems and yeah like i think it's really uh important to just like reject those terms um 
completely because, you know, I, I think one of the things that's so fascinating, and I, I think that's a really good point that it is, it does end up being about like managing the, the people who have already been the victims of the moral panic. The moral panic has basically made them the folk devils of that moral panic. And rather than trying to, um, you know, undercut the logic of the moral panic and say, hey, this isn't actually as problematic as, as anyone's making it seem, or, you know, there are other ways that are more humane and just to, to address these issues, if we can even acknowledge that they're issues, um, it's sort of like, well, we have a gentler, kinder way of, you know, attacking the, the folk devils. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. I think, I think that, that, you know, I've really been heartened by like the grassroots effort to tie uh, drug reform back into questions of social justice and social inequality, to tie drug reform back into a sense of really thinking about like the, the communities that um, could be and should be more empowered in these conversations. Um, and even this is, I think, a huge issue with, with the way that the media talks about drug policy reform or, or the debate around drug policy or anything like that is that there are, like I said, there are these institutions like the police, uh, government officials, major think tanks that are presenting themselves as experts on drug policy that are presenting themselves on as sort of like the, the the unbiased sort of experts on the issue. It allows the media to say, hey, we're presenting these sort of official stances. We're just reporting you what, you know, these established authorities think. But in doing so, it's silencing voices of, let's say, you know, when was the last time you, you read an article where they were talking about a policy issue and also interviewed people who are in a community that's deeply impacted by that issue. When's the last time you read something about drug policy reform? You know, that wasn't just like, here's someone from NIDA, here's somebody from the police department, here's someone who, um, you know, has family members that were incarcerated, or here's someone who, you know, is engaged in activist work to try to change drug laws from a human rights perspective. Like, I think that's part of how the debate gets like really shrunk down to this really specific terrain. I think what's fascinating to me about Americans and American exceptionalism is we act like these drug policies are something that only happen within America. And we sort of ignore that a lot of other countries have dealt with these things and have landed mm -hmm. on very different sides. So if we wanted to know what legalization looked like, there are countries who have legalized these things. We could examine those case studies, but we act as if America is its own sort of little island mm -hmm. um, instead of looking at, you know, oh, what would happen if we legalized it? Let's look at these countries who have legalized X, Y, and Z or who have descheduled these things. Um, so I, I always find that really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating because on one hand, I think, I think the, there's a temptation to have it both ways in the United States, because at the same time, we've also exported our drug policies abroad. So you think about the fact that the military uh, cooperates with uh, police officers to do things like, um, you know, uh, destabilizing other regions in the world under the guise of addressing narcotics issues or pressuring um, international governance to have, you know, similarly punitive drug laws in other countries, or even the way that our nation has been fairly uh, friendly um, with, you know, really intense right-wing authoritarian regimes that have been taken an extremely uh, harsh, almost genocidal approach to drug law enforcement. So, it's sort of interesting because it's like, you know, on one hand, we want to say that we're like this special place where, you know, this is just this magical laboratory of freedom where things happen here that are special. But then also the United States wants to be the standard bearer for like, you have to do it, what we're doing at all times. And it's even though we know that it's not working um, and even just like looking at like, 
you know, there's so much evidence about like, you know, even mentioning like places where there's needle exchange programs, places where they, there are countries that provide housing and resources to people um, who are struggling with substance use disorder. And it's not surprising that it's very effective in those context, in those contexts. There's nothing specific culturally besides just the fact that, you know, they're having different conversations and thinking about it differently. Um, you know, maybe the ethnic politics in, in a region makes it the, the scapegoating process and dehumanization isn't operating in the same way sometimes. Um, or maybe it's just that they've managed to have, uh, you know, more pragmatic approaches. But yeah, I mean, there's so much evidence that's being ignored. And I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating and frustrating, you know, if you're uh, involved in this in any kind of way, if you're involved either in uh, pushing for policy reform. If you're a researcher, if you're if you're an advocate in some kind of way, I'm sure as as you know a public defender, you know you also experience this. It's it's very frustrating, um, the way that that the the very clear evidence about what works and doesn't work is, is just ignored, and it's not the point. I mean, in a certain way, it's a little disturbing to realize that the point of of the criminal legal system in the United States, the philosophy of it is about punishment, like at its heart. So we can say, yeah, it's not functional because it's not doing all of these things, but I don't think it's designed to do any of these things. So it would, it would take, I mean, that's why I think personally that the solution is to just have less, less uh, criminal legal system involvement because it's not designed to do any of things we can say hey let's try to embed like social workers and and in the criminal legal system or something like that but like instead i think it'd be better to just allow it to shrink and and while at the same time undergo a pretty radical transformation in how we think about those issues i think that's the only thing that's going to resolve it well this yeah i mean the part you know people i people have made this point on on twitter and whatever a thousand different times but it's not that the criminal legal system is broken. It is working perfectly. It's just that mm-hmm. it's designed to do a different thing than you want to think it is. Right? Like, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just not designed to do the thing that they teach you it's designed to do. You know, yeah, this, this is something. Control, it's working great. It's something that I saw in the debate because the number one sort of, I, I looked at the different frames for how people talk about why drug policy, what, what is their argument in favor of drug policy reform? Number one with a bullet is that our drug policies are dysfunctional. It's literally taking the, the logic of functionalism and saying, hey, it's not achieving these goals. And not only is that incoherent just in terms of everything we've talked about, but in order for it to be seen as dysfunctional, it has to reinscribe the moral panic. So it has to be about how the dysfunction of the criminal legal system is, is that it's not effectively engaging in social control against racialized communities. Because the number one thing that's presented is like, um, you know, Drug dealers are still proliferating. There's a lot of racialized code words used around who the drug dealers are. Um, well, it is like people are still doing drugs, so the system's not working. It's like, yeah, who, why is that the thing you give a shit about? Right. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's the issue. Is like, on its own terms, it's not failing. It's, it's, a, it's a massive industry. Um, you know, the drug testing industry is giant. Um, you know, the police have gained a lot of power in terms of like sort of micro policing practices and, and the ability to, to search people and, and, um, you know, go through people's possessions and, and, you know, break into people's homes. Um, you know, it's going pretty well if, if that's what you want. And yeah, the goal has never been actually to do anything. I mean, this is like, you know, then the actual birth of the war on drugs is in the 1870s. And it was about policing Chinese immigrants um, under the guise of closing opium dens. 
And yeah. so from the beginning, it's been about a racialized moral panic. The first drug laws in the United States were a racialized moral panic. Yeah. Um, I, and there's never been a punitive drug law that isn't tied. I mean, even alcohol prohibition, as much as it was short-lived, alcohol was prohibited in part because there was a campaign to tie alcohol use with indigenous people, with the idea that saloons are places where white people, white middle-class people are corrupted by, you know, racial, racialized others and, and people of color and, and immigrants. Um, the idea that, you know, even before the, the boundaries of whiteness were kind of stretched, um, you know, the idea that like Jewish people are participating in the alcohol industry or the idea that Irish people and Catholics are, you know, deadly addicted to alcohol and it makes them dangerous. Like all of these narratives are so useful. They have so much purchase um, in a racialized society. Well, uh, that's what's kind of funny to me is now that a lot of the, the immigrant groups from the age of prohibition are, are white now, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Irish and the Italians and the, the Poles, you know, are, are all white. Now, you know, even though that is the most widely used drug in the United States that I'm pretty sure still causes the most deaths. Mm -hmm. um, and it is certainly one of the most disruptive to families and children and work and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows there is no policing of alcohol. I mean, we barely got around to policing fucking DUIs. <laughs> uh, right? like, like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess if you handle a two ton vehicle, well, sauced out of your mind a couple of times, we will we will really mm -hmm. start to criminally intervene. Well, I think and, that's that's what's so interesting to me about marijuana policy is now that it's been decriminalized, a lot of people will say, oh, no one should be in jail for marijuana, but very few people are actually in jail only for marijuana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People just say, oh, he was acting funny. Oh, we thought we smelled it on him. And then they're arrested for other infractions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's this idea of using it as an excuse to harass people, particularly non-white people, uh, and then they get in trouble for other things. So you can say like, oh, our jail doesn't house anyone who's jailed for marijuana charges, a lot of the people <laughs> housed there are charged for other, right? Like, yeah, marijuana is used as a pretext to search people constantly, especially mm -hmm. because there's a smell to it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because they don't even have to like prove that, that they're, the idea is as a police officer, hypothetically, you could just say that you smell marijuana. Yeah. Right. Or you can, um, you know, have your police dog search a car and in a certain way that will make them get excited in a way that you can say is because they smelled something. There's a lot of ways that that gets um, used. I think one of the major barriers, and I think this is why it is such a miraculous victory, um, the policies that were enacted in New York, is because you know, it's been known for a while that there are formal and informal quota systems operating. And that makes it so that there's always going to be incentives for policing communities that have the least amount of political and economic power to fight back against um, conviction rates. So if you're telling police officers that they need to get a certain number of arrests, and there's certain groups of people that are just easier to arrest and get away with. There are certain groups of people that there's less consequence for harassing or, um, you know, unjustly arresting for their just going about their daily lives. Or if they're less likely to receive empathy and humanization from a jury. So you're more likely to have these big convictions that really stick. It's baked into the system. So, like, I think... That's another thing that really needs to be rooted out and looked at is, is if we really want to have a society with less crime, then we have to allow for the fact that what happens if the crime rate actually does go down, but you're telling people, hey, you need to keep finding this many people committing crimes. They're going to find it, whether it's there or not. And they're going to find it in the places where people have the least amount of power to fight back. Well, I mean, and that's, I think, tied into, uh, 
yeah, the clearance rate in major cities for like rapes and murders is terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think in Cleveland now, the homicide clearance rate, meaning, um, you know, the percentage of crimes that the cops actually solve, or at least like arrest a suspect yeah, I was for. going to say, is, not solve, just arrest. Right, yeah. yeah. Less yeah. arrests, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll give them a bone here and assume that they arrested the correct guy, even though, you know, uh, but it's, I mean, it's like 30%. I mean, it, it is, in, it is shocking how few <laughs> major crimes actually end in, in an arrest, let alone a conviction. Um, but right, if you are, you know, God help you, if you're, you know, selling a couple of bags of blow. Or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like, and and I think right, it's because that stuff's way e- that's way easier for the cops. It's such an easier job to go to yeah. pull over every black guy until you find something mm-hmm. than it is to like actually do Sherlock Holmes style detective work and figure out who murdered somebody. Yeah, I think what's interesting is also like, you know, I and I. I don't study this like explicitly, but I've read so much of the work on like how the, the fictional depictions of, of crime and, um, you know, police work, how that shapes the way that people are imagining what police officers are doing. Um, so little of their time is dedicated to serious crimes. And even just thinking about the fact that it's the goal is like not even crime prevention. So, yeah. You know, police police are usually involved hypothetically after something's already happened. So even in that case, it's it's not doing much. But I think it's interesting because you know, if you were to to ask the average person, I think they would have a way distorted perception of what um, the function of of police departments is, what officers are spending their time doing, what types of things they're focusing on. you know, the idea that they're out there solving these like big brutal crimes and they're following the clues that, yeah, I think we definitely have this weird sort of Sherlock Holmes kind of idea about it. That's really just not true because that's not even what would get rewarded or treated like, Oh, you're doing a good job. No, not at all. They want a big picture of 50, you know, bindles of heroin and a gun and, you know, $5 in cash or whatever the hell these people do. Well, I mean, what's fascinating to me is we seem to judge law enforcement on a different metric than we judge any other job. If you had a job where like a fourth of, so if you ran a restaurant and a fourth of your servers were stealing from you and the other third got the order wrong every single time, right? Like you would just close that restaurant. That would not be a (laughs) business. But we have these numbers and we have the data to show like civil forfeiture, right? Mm. Like police are seizing more than people are being robbed. Uh, We have numbers that suggest that police officers are committing more domestic violence than they're Mm. solving crimes against women and children, right? So we have all these numbers that suggest that the job being done is bad. But the perception is that this is a perfect job and they're being unfairly criticized when it doesn't seem like there are any, it is really wild as a data scientist who really loves statistics more than stories, which is, (laughs) I, I understand that people like stories more than statistics, but the statistics don't suggest this is a good system. Mm And so trying to get other people to see like, hey, so this seems bad. It seems like a bad job is being done in this city. And they're like, no. (laughs) Um, It's interesting because I think, you know, that is where narratives clash because there is a narrative of of police as guardians. There's definitely a narrative among um, conservatives of sort of police nationalism, which is that, you know, police are these ultimate representations of sort of the uh, protection of the nation that they are treated as these sort of like sacred warriors. The idea of like, they're the only thing that's keeping us, you know, from the um, barbarians at the gates essentially is like the narrative, you know, and, and those, those stories are powerful. They're morally powerful. 
They shape how people talk and think about these things. And it is unfortunate that, um, you know, that, that the, the data and the statistics aren't enough. I think it's important. I think it's important to have statistics. Like I'm a qualitative researcher, but most of what, how I justify what I'm doing involves drawing on quantitative research. So I can say, Hey, look, here's what's happening, you know, or here's uh, to demonstrate how much of a problem this is. Um, and I think that's important. And even there's people who are, are looking at sort of what happens when statistics do start to shape debates and, and influence things, you know, what statistics how are they being mobilized? Because I think, you know, the crime rate is a great example of statistics really like yeah. shaping a debate, shaping the sense of, of what works and what doesn't work, shaping the narrative, the fear of crime being way over exaggerated, people not having a long term sense of the massive crime, uh, the massive crime decline that we've seen since the 90s. Um, and not tying it to the underlying conditions that make crime possible. So obviously, if there's an economic downturn, there's going to be an uptick in crimes of desperation. I don't know why anyone acted shocked that right, um, right as COVID was really hitting the economy really bad, shoplifting went up. Because people are not able to make ends meet. It's not, it's not, it's not difficult to fathom why someone would steal food or, you know, diapers or toiletries or whatever, if they're, if they're desperate. And so it's like, oh, that's not part of the conversation. The conversation is always that this is demonstrating that there's not enough policing and there's not enough criminal legal system oversight, but our police are basically the equivalent of like a, a standing army. Like I think the, the NYPD is like the seventh largest military force in the world. So if that's not enough, if that's not enough policing and that's not enough punishment and enough punitive um, social control, then I don't know what is, right. you know, the idea that, that we just have to keep going back to this same well over and over again, anytime that there's an uptick in crime or anytime there's an uptick in certain types of crime that people specifically problematize, which tend to be like the crimes that people commit because they're desperate, not the crimes people commit because they're corrupt or something. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Well, that's what I wanted to, um, cause we're getting short on time. I'm, I just want to, oh, yeah just a very brief anecdote and then ask a question, uh, which is that it, it was, um, thank God COVID is ending. We got to have police week downtown here again. Um, thank Christ for that. I don't know what we would have done without it. And I just kept, they brought out every single, you know, armored personnel carrier tank, goddamn thing from whatever federal surplus budget they got. And you just can't help but think like, my God, how many schools could we fucking build? Um, with all this shit, but the, but the other, um, the corollary to that, I guess, is now everyone's having a freak out, uh, you know, all these, even like centrist liberals or, or whatever, you know, like Jonathan Chates of the world were, were freaking out that like, this was going to be it. Like Larry Krasner was going to lose the election in Philly, uh, because the violent crime rate is way up from what it's been, you know, before the pandemic. And that this is a, uh, consequence of you know progressive the progressive prosecutor movement and defunding the police and all of this and, and so you know we've really made our bed here and so and so we should have to line it and I, I would just you know if you could talk about <laughs> that for a second because it's such bullshit well I think <laughs> I also want to know what do they think a tank is going to do in the face of a mugging like let's, right, well, yeah. let's, let's give the premise that that violent crime is up, which mm. it is and it isn't, right? And and let's give the premise that the issue is funding police. If the police are spending their funding on tanks, what is a tank gonna do in the face of a domestic violence incident? Right. Like how is a tank helping that? The tank is for when they commit an egregious act against the community and people protest. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what the tank is for. The tank isn't. It's not for anything else. 
but, regular murders or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, but I think what's interesting is like, I would love to see where they actually defunded the police in a substantial way. <laughs> I don't know. It's like as though they think it happened just because people said it on Twitter or something. There was a massive push, but ultimately, you know, it hasn't really been this big um, policy shift. It hasn't even had, uh, it hasn't even been attempted really in a real way. Um, and what people are pushing for when they're talking about defunding the police is not just shrinking the carceral state and having less policing, but it's also about shifting resources. So if there's also been some massive reinvestment in communities that has happened, and I just am not aware of it, I would love to hear about that. Right. But it's not happening. So I, I don't know. I think, I think that people, um, are very interested in um, policing the boundaries of the debate. Yeah. And the idea being, like, if your solution is involves too much radical change, there has to be some way to demonstrate that it's not pragmatic enough. Um, even if that means really distorting what's actually happening. Well, um, like... It, I mean, it, it's it's an admission almost if you like actually look at it, right? It's like, well, violent crime is, is spiking super high. It's like, yeah, well, we didn't change anything. Yeah. So right. this is really just an indictment of the shit that we've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the social conditions are there. If you look at the, what social conditions would um, underlie a rise in, in interpersonal violence, Obviously, domestic violence got really bad because a lot of people were at home with their their spouses or families and, you know, they had dysfunctional situations or they didn't have healthy forms of communication or coping. Obviously, you know, people are under immense strain and, and people are experiencing extreme social isolation. And obviously, the economy has been hit and a lot of people have lost their jobs. And we live in a society that values property over people in such a way that I think does really push uh, people towards violence as the solution for their problems. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's very unfortunate that there are a lot of people that will think of themselves as like the serious person in the room or the adult in the room. And really all they're um, advocating for is nothing ever actually changed. There's a there's you know there's a lot of, of money and influence to be gained by doing that I think. Well, you're right. I mean, Matt Iglesias' Substack mm. makes like a hundred grand a month now or whatever. So, but I also think it's really telling about where the bounds of the debate are. Yeah. That slightly increasing social services is seen as incredibly radical. Like the mm -hmm. idea that maybe we have daycare, maybe we have affordable housing, is yeah. seen as this like far left extremist view when it's like if you look at public health like one of the best things we could do for public health is offer more affordable housing but uh -huh. that's seen as incredibly absurd which is as i think a fairly regular person like the idea that that's radical is confusing to me yeah, yeah it is and i think you know this is where uh, i will take another like you know just a moment to 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 just say that I, this is where I think storytelling and narratives do matter is like, it's not, it's not obvious to the average person. I don't think most people aren't conditioned to see those connections. You know, I think that we uh, are operating from a vantage point where we're um, trained to see those connections or that's how we happen to think about it. And so I think that is a unique vantage point. And, and so therefore it's kind of like, getting that story out there of what that connection looks like in a real human way, having it backed up by evidence and having it backed up by data, I think is really powerful. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the role that something like sociology needs to be playing in, in these conversations and in these debates. I mean, I, I understand why people shy away from doing public scholarship because all of these things are seen as political. I'm sure even the things that we've been saying in this conversation people could take as like taking these political stances. But ultimately, 
when there's a certain story that's being told by the evidence, by the people that are experiencing something, and, you know, by these counterexamples that we have, it's worth paying attention to. And it's really just a matter of like amplifying that, which I think it is kind of the big challenge moving forward is like, how do you amplify that? How do you create an audience for it? How do you encourage people to make those connections? Because I think once they make those connections, you can't not. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I like uh, doing sociology, you know, to begin with. That's kind of what gets me fascinated about it is, is I think once people start seeing the connection between a social condition like housing and other things like crime, public health, you know, you start seeing those connections and then it totally changes your perspective and, and it totally changes what solutions you see as uh, rational or reasonable. Yeah. Well, I, think, I think so much of our personal experience at growing up as Americans is a very adversarial, like competition-based sense of the world. And so if mm -hmm. that's your sense of the world, crime is about who wins and who loses, who's punished and who's rewarded. And what yeah. if you switch your frame to what would make the community better? Mm -hmm. And if you think mm -hmm. about what we label as crimes as a community problem with community solutions, punishment really starts to fade away, right? Punishment doesn't reduce crime. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it is really interesting. Like if you can just shift your perspective or kind of shift like what you think the problem is, the mm -hmm. solutions really open up. We are, we're really excited to plug your book, which is uh, Debating the Drug War. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, well, that's a, I, um, yeah, just to put a fine point on it, I mean, that's, that's what I really appreciate about what, what, what you and Elle do is, um, you know, I still, <laughs> I mean, I get clients who are themselves the victims of this system who will argue with me about how this all works because they saw something on law and order. Mm -hmm. right? And because, so the dominant narratives are so, so bad. Um, Absolutely. They're so God awful about like how this all works and, and what we even should be doing with this. Um, so I do, I do really appreciate what, what you both do. Um, but we are, yeah, we are at about an hour. So I do want to. Uh, okay. I do want to wrap it up, but I really, really do appreciate your time. Um, this yeah, is, thanks. This has been the most fun one for me, at least. Uh, but yeah, the, <laughs> book is, uh, the book is Debating the Drug War. Uh, Michael Rosino, it's uh, R-O-S-I-N-O, michaelrosino.com or at Michael Rosino on Twitter. He's a professor of sociology at Malloy. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like we could have kept this conversation going for hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know? I, yeah, I at least, if you get three beers in me could do this for an entire evening so okay yeah. sounds good <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah feel free to free, feel free to reach out on not under the guise of a podcast and we can talk more yeah. it sounds great <laughs>